Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights in education. We're going to get started. Welcome to this special live recording of So To Speak, the free speech podcast, where every other week we take an uncensored look at the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. I want to welcome new listeners because today's live recording is done alongside the First Amendment Watch. They are a co-sponsor of today's recording. The First Amendment Watch, if you don't know them and you're a regular listening to this show, uh, they produce lots of educational materials, news, commentary, and um, additional materials about the First Amendment, and they're based at NYU, that is New York University. And we're so glad to be sponsoring this event with them about Yakamushingama's new book called Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media, which is due out, I believe it's next Tuesday, right, Jakob? February 8th? February, yep. And you're coming to us for the United States right now. You're based overseas uh, doing a book tour, um, but you're also the, in addition to the, the author of this excellent new book, the executive director of the Danish think tank Justitia. And I want to welcome you back onto the show because I think you've been a guest two previous times. Thank you so much, Nico. Always a pleasure to, to, to be on your show. And we have a panel here to discuss your book, and I'm glad to say that all three of our other panelists have also been previous guests on the show. Of course, there is Greg Lukianoff, He's my boss. He is the president and CEO of the Foundation for Individual Rights and Education and the co-author most recently of The Coddling of the American Mind. Greg, you're a few offices down from me. Welcome back. It's great to be back. I was on medical leave for shoulder surgery, so I'm very excited to celebrate Jakob's book. I've been excited about it for years. And then we, we also have uh, another author who was on the podcast a couple of years ago to discuss his book. That's Professor Stephen Solomon. He's the founding editor at First Amendment Watch, and the director of NYU's Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute, and the author of the aforementioned book, Revolutionary Dissent, How the Founding Generation Created the Freedom of Speech. Welcome back to the show, Stephen. Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. And then another previous guest to the show, Sarah McLaughlin, who is the director of FIRE's Targeted Advocacy Program, where she focuses on art censorship and U.S. colleges' relationships with international threats to free speech. Sarah, welcome back. Thanks for having me. So the plan of attack, we've got a number of guests here and we're doing it remotely, which can always be a little bit difficult. Uh, I've got some prepared questions that are going to tie in with Jakob's book. And then I want to open up the floor to listener questions. I think we had something like 200 or over 200 guests register to attend this live recording, so to speak. So we want to hear from you. I'm going to try and keep my prepared questions to 30 minutes. And because the history of free speech covered in Jakob's book is so vast, we agreed beforehand to focus on how lessons from free speech movements throughout world history can help us overcome and shed some light on today's divisions over the value of free speech. But that doesn't mean we can't go wherever the conversation takes us. And I encourage everyone on this call to the extent that they have questions related to other free speech topics or modern free speech topics to ask those. And then a final reminder that 50 copies of Jakob's book, Free Speech, will be given out at random to attendees of tonight's live recording. And our producer, Jackie, told us that you can expect emails in your inbox tomorrow if you want a copy. So let's just dive right in. Jakob, your new book uses the egalitarian verse elitist conceptions of free speech is kind of a core framing device uh, through your journey through free speech history. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose that device and what those schools of thoughts are? Yeah, I, I really found it to be sort of a recurring pattern throughout uh, the history of free speech, really back to ancient times. So I uh, argue that the egalitarian concept of free speech originated in the Athenian democracy, where they had sort of two concepts of, of free speech. One of them was isegoria, equality of speech, which was more like political free speech, which all um, freeborn uh, male citizens could exercise uh, in, in the political assembly in their direct democracy. And then they had parousia, which is 
uh, uninhibited speech, which permeated the culture uh, of of the Athenian democracy. Of course, by by our modern standards, the uh, the the egalitarianness of the Athenian democracy was 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 not so impressive. But by 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 the standards of the day, they were they were quite radical. And then uh, on the other hand, you had uh, the Roman Republic, where you also had free speech ideals, but where it was more top down. So it was. Uh, and, and an elite, a well-educated elite, uh, senators like Cato, like Cicero, uh, who, who exercised free speech and where they were much more cautious about letting the unwashed mob uh, exercise free speech in, uh, in, in assemblies uh, and, and so on. And, and you see that conflict really throughout the history of free speech all the way up until to, today where, where social media and the internet really has reignited uh, this uh, th- this debate where um, you could say that those who are the elite, those who have a privileged access to the public sphere, who, who act as sort of institutionalized gatekeepers are always really concerned when new technologies or, or, or new political developments expands the public sphere to, to previously voiceless uh, groups. Uh, and, 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 and those have included sort of the poor and property less, uh, women, uh, racial minorities, uh, religious uh, minorities, and so on. And and today, it's really uh, about you know whether uh, it's 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 irresponsible to let everyone say whatever they want on social media, uh, or whether we need uh, platforms and or governments to to purge um, uh, different kinds of speech that is uh, deemed uh, dangerous uh, by, um, by by elites. So so that that's really a a recurring. Uh, theme th- throughout the history of free speech, and it's amazing to see how many statements made. You know, Erasmus, the, the great humanist uh, scholar who, who who wrote, you know, hundreds of books and pamphlets himself, sort of complaining uh, in in the 1500s about how uh, printers uh, of of books and and pamphlets were sort of flooding the public sphere with mad and impious uh, ideas that were uh, dangerous uh, and, and full of, of, of lies, which, which sounds really similar to some of the complaints we hear about uh, social media today. So, so that's a recurring theme uh, throughout the book. And, and then in those cases, the people who were advocating for the limited limitations on the distribution of some of those pamphlets or the limitations on the excesses of the printing press, for example, they would be elitist under your framework, right? The idea that they would, the they, information yeah. should be limited to a certain elite that can that can handle it, right? The, un, exactly. the unwashed the, masses can't. Yeah, but, and, and actually someone like Voltaire, who's often sort of seen as a free speech absolutist, is a, is a very good example of, 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 of someone who, who is in favor of sort of elitist free speech. Uh, he, he's not in favor of, of the unwashed mob. Be, um, you know, enlightenment is for the enlightened. It's not for it's not for everyone, uh, and and uh, and and but you know th- these attitudes are also um, uh, linked to 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 what I call uh, in the book uh, Milton's curse, which is that a lot of people adopt sort of unprincipled views. They 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 are in favor of free of free speech for some, but but not for all. And that goes back to to John Milton, the the the, the famous author of Areopagitica. Who, who was in favor of abolishing uh, pre-publication censorship, but not really when it came to Catholics or atheists or, 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 or other people who had irresponsible and, and dangerous views. Uh, and, and, and you still see that. And that's a, that's a fascinating modern example. So if you go to, to 2006, uh, when, uh, when Barack Obama was a junior senator from, from Illinois, he, he had this podcast where he was uh, attacked. He was in favor of net neutrality, and he praised the internet for, for being this uncensored space that allowed him to say whatever he wanted without any gatekeepers. Uh, and uh, of course, he used uh, social media to, to, to really impressive uh, effects as this outsider who sort of upended uh, the, the traditional elites in his, in his party uh, as, as, as a minority and, and as a junior senator. So, so, so social media was instrumental for him for, for winning the so-called Facebook generation. And then fast forward to 2020, and in an interview in The Atlantic, he suddenly calls social media the gravest danger to a uh, gravest threat to our democracy. So that's a good example of someone uh, adopting the elitist uh, f- uh, free speech position, uh, as well as falling 
for uh, <laughs> sort of falling into the trap of of Milton's curse of of, of sort of saying. I uh, enjoyed free speech and social media when it benefited me, but now uh, I no longer think it's such a great idea because people uh, whom I don't like have taken advantage uh, of it. And, and, and that is very prevalent. And, and of course, it's been very much the 2016 presidential election that changed institutional and elitist attitudes towards uh, social media. It was sort of hailed as with the Arab Spring, and, and, and many people thought that social media would bring democracy and freedom uh, uh, to the world. And then they found out that, you know, free speech has costs uh, and can also include harms and, and gives voices to people that you really, really uh, don't like. Well, and, let's talk, and, and let's that talk about that. To handle. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's talk about that a little bit. And I, I do want to encourage our listeners who are listening to us live, if they have any questions to put them in the chat, and then our producer, Jackie, will feed them to us. Uh, if you would leave your name or if you want to remain anonymous, that's an option too. But we tend to think of our modern free speech controversies as new, right? But you kind of frame the social media debate in the context of past technologies as well. Frame it in the egalitarian versus elitist mold. And we always look at the historical elitists, so to speak, as kind of the villains, right? They they worked out their problems then, and now they can be seen as villains. But this, this is a very relevant conversation, of course, because we're having this disinformation debate about social media and about uh, new media right now with Joe Rogan, uh, yeah. for example, and, and his placement on, on Spotify. So, I, Greg, I want to ask you, you know, how should we think about this disinformation debate? Um, in the elitist egalitarian context, does regulating disinformation make one an elitist and therefore, you know, kind of from the perspective of history, a censor? Or am I thinking about it too wrong? Uh, I, I mean, I, I have a lot of thoughts about this. Well, one, you know, one thing that I want to say before getting to that is just, um, although I had lots of issues with um, uh, David Graeber's The Beginning of Everything book that came out, um, one thing that he does make a point of saying, and I think there's probably some truth here, is that there might have been a lot more uh, Athenian type societies, um, ones with sort of proto-democratic or, or, or uh, tribal arrangements that were more creative and more interesting than, than we'll ever know. Um, and that free speech in a small scale society, um, when, particularly when you're trying to decide what to do, you know, there, there has to be some amount of like give and take and, and talk about, uh, about what to do. So I actually think in some ways the history, we're just missing like a, a, like a big middle there because there's this vast, you know, like 5,000 years where we know very little about um, what, what their social arrangements were like. When it comes to the disinformation thing, I think we are doing something very foolish at the moment. I think that we are facing an epistemic crisis. And I thought this was really very well put by um, the vice president of Substack, um, who, who, by the way, wants to come on the show. Um, uh, Nico, I, I, I talked to her. She just had her third kid. So she's on. Um, she, oh, she, I uh, DM'd her on Twitter and she never responded to me. Yeah. But she was very, she went viral there for a second. Yeah. So. No, but it, it, her position is great because like one of the things that we seem to think now, disinformation is a very real problem, and, and but it, but people tend to think there's some kind of easy solution, and the easy solution is called omniscience, <laughs> no, no, knowing everything, having perfect knowledge, and that's not a real thing. So, um, but there are ways to to uh, abuse it. What we need are people that we actually trust, uh, and and gatekeepers that we trust. But right now, trust is at a very low ebb, in part because there is this mistaken idea that if we shut down the wrong speech. That's going to make the um, uh, the productive speech. It, it, it's going to make sure that our, our debate stays productive. But it has the opposite effect. So, for example, I wrote, I wrote a piece for the Washington Post this morning um, about the Ilya Shapiro situation at Georgetown University uh, Law School, and my point in it is that I don't think academia gets that. Uh, and quickly for the audience, this is a, um, a professor. He, he was he was just hired to be the head of the Constitutional Law Center after Biden announced that, um, uh, that he was going to nominate an African-American woman, um, uh, Shapiro said, I actually support this uh, Indian-American man, um, who I think is actually the most qualified. And, it's, um, and, and he put it badly. He said, it's like, but people are always going to think that it went to the lesser Black woman. 
offensive way of putting it. Um, he apologized, but what he was getting at was a was an opinion that is actually kind of common. I, I cited an ABC News poll that said something like seventy six percent, and like a, a majority of, of, of uh, Democrats even think that it should be uh, the nomination should be decided regardless of gender or race. So what am I getting at? I'm getting at if people. Uh, if the, if the point of having an institution like higher education is to produce experts that we all trust, but it's pretty clear that even arguments that are popular among Americans that are considered relatively mainstream are ones that can actually get you fired on campus, people stop trusting the experts because you start saying, but if the answer was anything but that, you wouldn't even tell me anyway. So I think we're facing an epistemic crisis from multiple directions, both from the reality of this information and from the reality of governments like Putin and China trying to mess with us, but also from the, from the, the solution itself can create additional trust problems. Yeah. And Stephen, I want to bring you in here because historically, one of the vehicles we've used to sort truth from falsity in addition to institutions, at least in the COVID context, like the CDC or the government is... Our, our, is our news is our news media right? And you're at a school of journalism. So, fr from that perspective, how do you? And also the perspective of a free speech activists such as yourself, an educator. How do, how do you think about the disinformation debate that's happening right now? Um, I, I think there's a lot of parts to it. So there's there's long been disinformation by by the government as well, right? I mean the Vietnam War. Um, uh, the uh, the justification for going into uh, Iraq, um, you know, the government itself engages in a lot of disinformation. So it's not um, only um, the enlargement of the public sphere that's that's done that. But I think um, once you once you do enlarge the public sphere, as 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 happened uh, with social media, then um, and people are directed into echo chambers uh, where they hear. Um, information and opinions that, you know, confirm their own viewpoint and it can get more and more uh, out there um, to the left or to the right and without any regard to whether it's true, then, um, you know, th there's no breaks. Uh, there's no internal breaks for that. Um, ideally, with social media, you would you'd be put, you know, if you want to call it chambers, it wouldn't be an echo chamber. It would be a chamber where there's all kinds of different opinions and you read and um, you discuss with other people um, in, in that group and, and you, um, you, you learn from that, but that's, that's not the way it works. So, um, you know, it was, um, it was, it was a similar thing back in, in colonial times when this public sphere, uh, grew as well. I mean, it started with the elite, um, publishing newspapers, right? There were only about, there were only about 25 newspapers at the time of the revolution and the public sphere quickly grew, um, with you know liberty trees and liberty poles and things like that, and so uh, some of the, some of that speech was was simply false. I think when you get into political debate, it's just natural for people to exaggerate and um, put things out there that um, just don't stand uh, critical scrutiny. So, Sarah, this is my own personal philosophy, and kind of the philosophy that I, I've gotten from Jakob's book as well. The idea that Sensors can often win in the short term. They can bur burn Giordano Bruno. They can put Galileo on house arrest. But usually in the long term, they can't completely snuff out new ideas or dissent. But we have a lot of new technologies. I'm curious if that changes anything. You know, you see what China's doing with its great firewall. And even disinformation, the ability to disseminate it more widely than we have historically, you don't often need to censor people, for example, uh, in order to snuff out an idea. You can just flood the zone with a bunch of crap. And Peter Pomerantsev talks about this uh, being the strategy in Russia, for example, in his book, Nothing is True and Everything is Possible. Like Russia does censor, right? There are very few media organs that exist there that aren't arms of the state currently. But they also just flood the zone with disinformation. So nobody knows what to believe. And therefore, they're just kind of ambivalent to the truth at a certain point. So how do you think about these new technologies and their effectiveness and censorship from a historical standpoint? More effective, less effective? Um, you know, it's hard to say. I, I think one point that Jakob makes in his book is that we have more speech than ever today. Um, and he's completely right. But 
what's, what's fascinating to watch um, is how we have all this more speech and how it actually kind of gets people the attention of the censors. Um, so we see this a lot, you know, today with China, we'll have people who, you know, tweet something. Um, you know, we have social media, we have this way to speak to billions of people, millions of people that we never could imagine, you know, a few decades ago. But when you can speak to a lot of people, it turns out that a lot of people are listening who might not like what you say. And so it's kind of, um, you know, it's creating this idea of like transnational repression where since you can be heard by so many people, it turns out that the censors who are thousands of miles away from you can hear you too. And they might try to do something about what you're saying. Yeah. But didn't that happen with Erdogan in Turkey, right? Wasn't there a poet in Germany who wrote a poem or something or said something out against him? And then he's of course, very thin skin. I hope he doesn't come after me after saying that, but, uh, you know, the, the effects of speech now, as you say, cross borders, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, the, the, um, the, the case you're um, referencing, there was a, a TV comedian who read um, a, a very offensive poem about Erdogan, which I will not repeat here. Uh, you can look it up yourself if you'd like to. Um, but Erdogan attempted to sue him. Um, he was trying to use um, Germany's, um, you know, uh, at the time they had a law against insulting heads of state. Um, he was trying to get that applied um, against this comedian. Um, one thing that I do think is interesting, um, I, I'm on the whole somewhat pessimistic about, um, you know, free speech and, um, you know, emerging technologies, but uh, one story that caught my attention, uh, which is, you know, somewhat positive, um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but at, um, in Hong Kong, there's a, a university where there was this, um, you know, large memorial for the Tiananmen massacre. Oh, yeah, um, I saw the story. Yeah, yeah and, and so that was, um, you know, kind of taken down. Um, I think there's like a lounge that's been put in its place in case you want to sit there and think about censorship. Um, but, you know, people are actually um, now, you know, they have models where you can 3D print um, your own mini version of um, the statue. And it's obviously not a, a perfect solution, but I do think, um, you know, we should at least pay attention to the, the small ways of resistance that new technologies can provide us um, when we're, you know, seeing this kind of mass scale of censorship that you know, is occurring in Hong Kong. Jakob, uh, it strikes me that, and we get this comes across in your book, that we often revere the righteousness of our historical heretics, um, but are committed to silencing and destroying our modern heretics, right? It's like the, the perspective of history gives you a sort of distance from the heretic that allows you to also embrace them. Sure. So is it possible to determine in one's modern time from your research throughout history the heretic who will be vindicated by history or, or can history only determine that? Can you separate them, the truthful heretic from the quack grifter? Or are we all doomed to look absurd by the long arc of history? You know, for example, I think of Thomas Paine, right? Who yeah. is revered today, but died a pauper. For yeah, and, and was hated, was, was, was hated by, by, you know, absolutely hated uh, by, by, uh, by, by many uh, people. I do doubt that Alex Jones will be <laughs> regarded as a champion of, 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 of free speech and, uh, and a prophet uh, of, of truth and righteousness in a hundred years, uh, even though he was purged from, from social media sort of almost uh, overnight. Uh, um, but, but, but quite clearly, uh, it's, 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 it's quite possible and very likely that there are people now who uh, have said things that, uh, that, that uh, rub a lot of people the wrong way, uh, who have been, you know, fired from a university or whatever, and who will be vindicated by, by history uh, later on. Uh, so, so that, that is uh, very difficult to, to determine. But I'd like to sort of Go to 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 your question about China. China is definitely ha, has become a, a huge juggernaut, and it, it sort of created these digital client states where it's exporting its technology to to a lot of authoritarian states to to allow them to keep protests down. But it's interesting. So if you read Solzhenitsyn's um, 
uh, Gulag, the archipelago, he talks about how the Gulag system was really only possible because of the, the hardcore censorship of, uh, of, of, uh, of, of the Soviet Union, especially during the, the Stalinist era. So, so very few people knew really what was going on uh, uh, in, in, in the Gulag system, didn't know the scope uh, of it, and few stories really uh, came out. But then you have sort of the, the the Chinese equivalent in Xinjiang, where they've built these uh, massive uh, uh, labor camps or concentration camps or whatever you want to call them, where they put Uyghurs, uh, predominantly Muslims, in them. And technology has been absolutely instru instrumental in exposing it. So you've been been able to use you know satellites, smuggle out videos on on cell phones and so on. So China has not been able to obfuscate. The, the scale of that giant repression in the same way that, that Stalin could sort of mostly hide uh, some of the incredible scale of, of crimes that went on in, in, in the Soviet uh, Union. Uh, so in that sense, uh, I think there, uh, let's not forget that, uh, that there are ways to, to and, and I'd also like to highlight someone like Bellingcat, this sort of journal, uh, British journalist who has used all kinds of creative way, sort of open source technology taken from YouTube and all kinds of other places to expose uh, human rights violations in, in Russia, in Syria, uh, and so on. Uh, and so we have this negativity bias, I think, as, as, as human beings, that we tend to focus on all the negative things and take all the positive things for granted. So for instance, we're sitting here having an, an uncensored discussion uh, in various locations uh, uh, around the world. We don't, at least I don't, we don't think of it as wow, now we're exercising our freedom of speech. This is just natural. We're having this discussion, but go back a couple of hundred years and that would have been you know, well, uh, astounding to people that they had this opportunity where we've just criticized uh, four different states and, and various politicians. Uh, and, and but Jakob, we're having this conversation on Zoom and as Sarah can well speak to, Zoom has shut down conversations before, right, Sarah? Yeah, uh, last year, was it last year or... It all blurs together the past year two years. 2021, the year before that, 2020. Um, yeah, they acted on complaints from uh, the Chinese government over a Tiananmen Memorial that was being held. Um, and so pretty much what happened is um, they said it, the event was against the law and they had Chinese users attending the event. So Zoom shut down the event for everyone and blocked the hosts. Um, some were in New York, uh, one was in Hong Kong. And you know, after a backlash, they realized, hey, you know, maybe we shouldn't be applying Chinese laws globally. Um, so I'm glad they figured that one out, but um, it was a little troubling. They didn't know that one already. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just wanna do some rapid fire questions here. And I wanna go to you next, Stephen. Uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Thomas Paine. The long arc of free speech history I want to know where you think, as a scholar of the American Revolution, that fits in. It, you know, it, how significant compared to all the other developments, the Isagoria and Parousia, uh, the, the Roman Republic, the, you know, what is it, Jacob, the Abyssinian Caliphate, you know, how do you rank the American Revolution and what it was able to accomplish in that timeline? I think it's, um, you know, enormously important because uh, freedom of speech was tied really for the first time to self-governance, right? So, so uh, you know, James Madison made the point that uh, the people were sovereign in a republic as opposed to the king and parliament. And so they had to have a full right to discuss public affairs without the threat of, of repression or seditious libel. Um, and, and so the, the, the tying of of freedom of speech, a vigorous freedom of speech. He didn't actually talk about any exceptions to it. He said, he said, Congress shall make no law. It means Congress shall make no law. So I, I think in, in large part, the, uh, the, the meaning of freedom of speech in America, the very vigorous, uninhibited, you know, robust um, idea of speech supporting our, our, our Republican form of government was, was formed then and it's carried through. You, know, you still see the Supreme Court in its opinions um, quoting Madison and that that idea of of, uh, of free speech supporting a de democratic and republican form of government. I, I, I mean, small R here, there, of course, republican yeah. form of government. Yeah. Uh, the last question before we turn it over to questions. It looks like we've got a, quite a few of them. Greg, I want to go to you next. Do you think the worldwide support for free speech has reached and already perhaps passed its zenith? You know, Jacob argues that the Global Club of Free Democracies is shrinking 
fast, but you call free speech, Greg, the eternally radical idea. So do you believe that in quite the quite literal sense that free speech will never find a place in history where it's no longer a radical idea? Um, not one that I can imagine, maybe when we're cyborgs or something, you know, living on another planet. Um, why I call it the eternally radical idea is partially, and this is Greg's blog to be clear. Yeah. Um, uh, but I'll, you know, also it, it, it's the term that I use to describe that free speech is neither conservative nor liberal. Be, um, and I always point people always like to begin books and articles by saying it's like, since the dawn of time, man has longed to be free. And it's like, only because other people were trying to oppress them. <laughs> um, so the idea that you uh, that you should have free speech, people get the idea that somebody else should have free speech is is radical, and and it will be opposed. It will be opposed in every generation, and people have to stand up uh, to fight it. I do think that it's demonstrable that we had sort of a high watermark um, of optimism about free speech. Uh, you know, I'd say between maybe 95 and, and 2005. 2005 is when the um, uh, Democratic recession that, that Jakob talks about in the book as well uh, begins. That's uh, uh, Jared, someone Diamonds, Jamie Diamonds name for it, um, about the, uh, the decrease in number of democracy. So I think with the defeat of the Soviet Union, liberalism had this wonderful, um, you know, uh, sense that it had beaten Nazism, it had beaten communism, and we're back to liberalism and, and free speech being central to that. I think the internet had a lot of optimism around it. I think we are in a stage right now, and I, I like Martin Gurry's idea that, that we're in a, um, like a fifth major wave uh, of communications technology. And what's his book again, Greg? Martin Gurry's. What's the name Martin of Martin Gurry's book? Is Revolt of the Public. Um, he he's a former CIA analyst, and he wrote a book trying to explain why things went so haywire in the past decade, and why polarization got so much worse, and authority got so uh, undermined. And he thinks that we had actually underestimated how profound billions of people talking to each other in real time actually is. And and I, I believe in that. So what I think I think we are in an unavoidably anarchical period where things are going to be difficult. We have to get used to something that has never been possible, the, the sheer, sheer scale and accessibility of talking to each other. And I, But I, what I'm afraid is, is our desire to solve it um, is going to be kind of like like what Henry VIII did with the printing press in, in uh, 1521. You know, just suppression um, isn't isn't going to work. So we have to figure out ways to learn to learn to live with it. Now, of course, places like China are saying, Hell with that. We're just going to try to control everything. Um, so we're, we're entering a, a very chaotic period. My, my co-author, Jonathan Haidt, um, thinks that this is going to be the only comparatively calm year of the uh, uh, of this decade. And it's all going to be haywire from this point in. I hope he's wrong, but I, I definitely think that things are going to get worse uh, before they get better. Greg, we have a question from someone uh, in the audience about this Substack VP's comments, uh, they asked, what is her position? We mentioned it in passing, but didn't really flesh it out. Mm -hmm. Or her position on free speech and, and how the platform polices its speech. Uh, just that by um, that, that essentially they should let people talk and they're not going to censor. They're supposed to be the uh, the wing of the Internet that, that people leave, you know, uh, the new, uh, popular newspapers in droves to actually go finally have a, a place where they can talk. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's very much kind of like what I said, is that the attempt to censor, um, to, even in an enlightened way, undermines confidence um, in, uh, in experts, even though they think it's supposed to increase it, it actually has, has the reverse effect. If it's clear that people are allowed to talk on Substack, um, people will trust it more because you're also trusting the listener to not immediately assume everything that you know, uh, Joe Rogan says is, is the gospel. Yeah. Speaking of Joe Rogan, I guess there was Spotify. You know, the, the nice thing about the VP at Substack is that she was unequivocal in her support for the values of the platform. Right. And you see this with colleges and universities all the time. They'll try and have it both ways. And then as a result, they appease nobody and they don't have a constituency. Spotify, to a certain extent, and it did stand by Joe Rogan, but it said it's going to do all this other the, this other stuff to spread more of uh uh, what they consider the truth about COVID and other controversial issues. And then you had, I think it was Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, I think just an hour ago, saying that they can do more uh, to address it. So it, it, it always unnerves me a little bit when you have the government saying that about a private company and you worry about ministries of truth and whatnot. Because it, it wasn't so long ago, for example, where Facebook was taking down posts about uh, from people who posited a lab leak theory, and then Joe Biden has the CIA go investigate it. Uh, 
we got another question from uh, Antonia. She wants to know what your take on the modern communication theory of the spiral of silence and the way it produces some kind of social and self-restriction from free speech. Is there anyone who's familiar with that theory? I think, Greg, you are. Jakob, are you? Um, I'm not, uh, but is, is that the one that uh, th that says that um, free speech uh, is, is used to silence because people are uh, afraid, you know, if they're attacked by trolls or... Um, you know, and, and that people self-censor basically uh, because the the tone is so harsh uh, online. I, I don't know if that's uh, what it, it refers to. Uh, it's I, a little I, bit more like the emperor's new clothes idea. Um, the idea okay. of pluralistic ignorance that essentially as soon as there is an incident that sort of enforces a norm, people tend to think the norm is much more common than it is. And it, and it leads to this downward spiral where suddenly nobody's talking about anything. And I do think that the um, in, in higher education, in, in, we, we, you know, we, we just did a um, this year, we started doing a scholar database. We have 508 examples of professors getting, you know, for lack of a better word, canceled or attempt to be canceled. And, and the problem there is it creates these weird little bubbles where people can't say what they honestly, honestly think. And that leads them to believe that the view they're not allowed to have is much less popular in society than it actually is. So I, the spiral silence is, is, is absolutely real. And I, and I think one of, I think the best antidote to it is open-mindedness and genuine, genuine curiosity for what people really think, even if, maybe even especially if it's if it's disturbing, strange, et cetera. But there's always a value in knowing what people really think, full stop. Stephen, Sarah, anything to add on that one? The question wasn't for any particular panelist. Uh, I think Rick really covered it. I don't think I have anything more. The, we have another question uh, from Martin, and this one's for Jakob. Uh, you recently had... Martin writes, you recently had some nice words to say about your experience as a judge in the recent Danish impeachment court case, observing that it was heartening to see the full panel Supreme Court judges represent a completely unpoliticized judiciary. The question is, do you consider a politicized judiciary especially dangerous to free speech? That's, that's, uh, that's a uh, that's a good question. Uh, just for, for, for reference, uh, I was uh, in Denmark. I don't know. Impeachment is not probably not the, the real correct term, but uh, a former Danish minister was uh, was put on trial by a special court, and it was only the sixth time in Danish history. And I was one of the politically appointed judges serving with thirteen Supreme Court judges uh, for for a, a long period. And and she was uh, found guilty and, and sentenced to six, sixty days uh, in, uh, in in prison. So that's the context. I guess you know the, the political politicization of, uh, of of a judiciary, of course, poses potentially huge problems to to to, to free speech, uh, de uh, depending a bit on on you know uh, the way it's it's politicized. But uh, you know the the old fashioned way would be to have some some cronies uh, appointed by by politicians and who will then ensure that uh, that, that free speech uh, is interpreted in a way uh, to exclude criticism uh, of uh, of the government that that is seen uh, again uh, and again um uh, you know i'm not an expert on the on the us uh, supreme court and what the politicized potential politicization uh, would mean but but you know given that the First Amendment uh, has been interpreted in many different ways, and that the current sort of very strong level of protection is 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 is, is something relatively new. Uh, I don't think it it's, it would be unimaginable to see you know uh, with uh, three or four uh, uh, new judges having that that the current level of protection could be could could be changed. I hope not going back to sort of a hundred years ago where. If you were opposed to American involvement in World War One, you could go to, to to jail for ten years, and the Supreme Court would say, "Well, that's fine. That's uh, that, that, that's not covered by by, by the First Amendment." Um, so, so yes, of course, that's a that, that's a that's a huge uh, danger if you have a politicized uh, uh, judiciary, and and the rule of law is is essential uh, for for uh, for for free speech because you can have the best laws in the world, but if 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 you don't have independent judiciary, if if all of the the judges uh, who are meant to enforce these norms are cronies or have a political a specific political orientation, uh, then uh, they won't uh, they won't uh, matter much. Greg, 
Um, just I want to put my hand up because um, I want to make sure that before we're done, we talk about uh, how fire Sarah McLaughlin, not, not the singer who just turned 45 two days ago, but our, our Sarah McLaughlin is working on a very cool book that she just started working on. And I, and I wanted to make sure that she was able to tell people about it before we uh, before the show's over. Thank you. I appreciate it. First, I think I need to ask why you know her birthday, but we can discuss that. NPR, later. man. Uh, <laughs> they they, uh, they yeah. told me. <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, thanks for mentioning that, Greg. Um, I started on it um, about a couple months ago. Um, as you may have, you know, heard from my comments earlier in the discussion, I've been, you know, pretty interested in, um, you know, how China is affecting the global conversation and what they're doing with free speech. Um, and I think it actually has a lot to do with higher education um, in the United States, uh, Australia, Canada, Europe. Uh, so I'm, you know, I'm really looking forward to finishing that up. And now that we've talked about it publicly, I have to. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Sarah, that, that, that actually is a good segue to an event that's happening or starting this weekend, the Olympics, right? There's been a lot of conversation around China and its human rights abuses, but also uh, the free speech climate. You have countries telling their athletes to bring burner phones to the Olympics, uh, can you talk a little bit about what China's doing and whether we should be concerned about it? Sure. Um, so they're doing a number of different things. Um, so obviously, you know, there's what they're doing within the country. Um, they've been you know, ramping up enforcement um, of censorship against activists. Um, you know, there have been some activists who are, you know, on house arrest until the games are over, you know, being told you better watch what you say if you don't want someone to get hurt for the next couple of weeks. Um, but in addition to that, um, the, um, a, the deputy director of Beijing 2022's organizing committee um, actually pretty much flat out threatened at a press conference that they have, um, quote, dedicated departments um, to investigate um, speech from athletes that is uh, against the Olympic spirit, especially against Chinese laws and regulations. Um, so they've been, you know, really openly threatening um, pretty much everyone who is attending the games. Um, you know, there could be consequences for what they do or say. Um, in addition to that, you know, the sponsors, um, they've been telling, you know, the athletes working with them, you better watch what you say, the I know the U.S. Olympic team has, um, you know, warned athletes, you know, you really shouldn't say anything until you get back. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's troubling that, um, you know, this, you know, supposedly high-minded international event is kind of turning into this nightmare of fear for people where they just want to go to the games um, and compete. But, you know, it's, it's, it's more about their self-censorship than what they actually do at the games. Jakob, you have your hand up over there. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I think that that speaks to the confidence, uh, the, the worrying confidence of China, because if you go to the 1936 Olympics in, in, in Berlin during Nazi rule, actually, the, the Nazis uh, eased, eased down on, on, on censorship. They allowed certain newspapers uh, that uh, to, to write stuff and they would sort of remove the Sturmer uh, from, from sort of the, the public streets of the, the most um, viciously anti-Semitic uh, newspaper. So they would sort of uh, say, show uh, a less totalitarian image uh, to, to the world uh, during the Olympics. But, but the Chinese uh, seem, you know, not to, uh, to care too much uh, uh, about their, their image when it comes to, to that and are, are confident that they can, you know, just uh, use force, you know. Um, and, and, you know, Lenin supposedly uh, said, I don't think it's a true quote, that, you know, the capitalists will sell us the rope with which we'll hang him. And, you know, at, at times, it, it's, I think it's, it, 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 it's, it's quite characteristic of how uh, Western corporations and, and institutions act vis-a-vis -vis, uh, vis -vis, uh, China, you know, Cisco building uh, the, the great firewall and Yahoo sort of entering the Chinese market initially sort of saying that they would uphold uh, free speech and then totally caving in. And then, you know, you had this Project Dragonfly by by Google uh, that was essentially incorporating uh, Chinese dictates on 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 uh, to their search engine, and it was only dropped because of resistance by by uh, by Google uh, employees. Uh, and and that I think tells us that the civil libertarian uh, ethos that originally guided Silicon Valley uh, is uh, is is not really uh, at the forefront anymore, and and that these uh, corporations uh, are ultimately in it for the money, and and uh, that will trump 
um, free speech concerns um, as as sort of the geopolitical um, balance is is recalibrated and, and authoritarian states uh, gain uh, more power and clout. Stephen, we've talked throughout this conversation about government censorship, for example, what China's doing, but also kind of the democratized public square and how private companies might impact it or impact the free speech uh, conversation or the speech rights of the people who participate in it. From a historical perspective, how important do you think it is to have free speech laws properly enforced that limit what the government can do relative to the cultural value of free speech that kind of lives among the people, I think of the spirit of liberty speech from learned hand, um, to, to kind of keep the free speech spirit alive. Cause you write in revolutionary dissent that despite laws that limited speech, uh, prior to the revolution breaking out, people practiced it, right? It's like they didn't need a law giving them a permission slip to speak freely. Yes, um, there were seditious libel laws that came from England back uh, in the 13th century, and they were um, uh, they came ashore in uh, in colonial America, and uh, um, colonial um, you know governors, um, British British uh, royal governors threatened to use them against a whole variety of uh, publications. So so the law of seditious libel existed, and it was a criminal law. So if you if you if you uh, criticized the government, in this case, George III or parliament or the royal governor, uh, you could be uh, prosecuted and put in jail for that. And there were a lot of prosecutions in, in the 17th century. Um, but in the 18th century, you see a lot of pushback. And so once protest breaks out against the British, uh, those, um, you know, the common law of seditious libel is, is just ignored. And uh, it's a free for all. And that's, uh, that's how the American Revolution came about because it involved a very radical change of opinion on the part of the people from being loyal subjects of the crown to being um, rebels who were, who were breaking away. And that whole process involved um, criticizing the king, criticizing the parliament. And, and a, lot of that, a lot of that under seditious libel laws was, was illegal. So there was, a, there was a common understanding of speech that went beyond what a legal scholar of the time would, like Blackstone, would say, here's what, here's what speech means. It only means freedom from censorship, prior restraint. Now in America, it meant a lot more than that. It meant the freedom to go out in the streets and protest. It meant writing essays and pamphlets and, and, and criticizing the king. And that was, that was um, unprecedented. Now, but to do that, you kind of need or people who want to ignore the law, the seditious libel, they need a little bit of breathing room to do it and to get it off the ground to hit that critical mass. Do you think something like that is possible in a, in a foreign country such as China right now? Or are the means of censorship so extreme there that give it, getting yourself that initial breathing room to hit critical mass is difficult? I think it's very difficult in a, in a country like China because there's such extensive controls. I mean, I deal with this. Uh, I have a lot of students from China, graduate students in, in journalism. And, um, you know, they, they, they talk about the, the controls. And when they come to the United States and they, they start writing about politics and business and, and so forth, they can write freely. And it's um, what a breath of fresh air, literally, uh, for them. Nobody is, is, um, is looking uh, over their shoulder. I, I had one student I'll never forget. We were talking about uh, an article that was critical of the American government. I forget what president, but um, a student raised raised her hand and she said, "In, in, in my uh, from China, she said, in my country, I'd be in jail if I wrote that." So the extensive nature of it, unless you have channels of communication that the government can't, you know, encrypted, for example, that uh, the government can't intrude on. Um, it's, it's, it's very difficult or impossible. Greg, we have a question here, um, from an anonymous listener among sun campus activists, there is the feeling that free speech has been used as a tool by the white elitist power establishment to keep down poor people and people of color. Hence some of the rebellion of unfettered free speech can be seen as a revolt of oppressed classes against the establishment C comments, question mark. Yeah. Um, I just think that's just dead wrong. Um, well, one thing I did want to say before, before that is that 
Jakob's book is amazing. I wanted to, want to be very clear about that. And, and his podcast on global free speech, I just adored. I couldn't, I couldn't rant about it enough. It, w- it was great. <laughs> and I should say, when I was writing my intro to this, I was like, and he's the author of free speech, which just kind of was like a, a weird thing to say. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So it's a great book um, and a great podcast series. Um, so this is something that I just feel like has been badly misrepresented to younger people. Um, so let's go back in history. Um, there is an idea that essentially, I, I talk about the three Bs, that, that essentially people growing up, particularly in, in wealthy, um, in the upper, like say, quartile of, of the United States, are being taught that essentially free speech is the argument of the three Bs, the bigot, the bully, and the robber baron. Um, and that's partially the result of the fact there being a, a high level of political homogeneity in K-12 teachers and in higher education. Now, how do I get there? Here's what I'm saying. Um, if you believe that free speech is the weapon of the rich and powerful, I got news for you. The rich and powerful do great in history. They do, they do great in history, period, because they are rich and powerful. Um, once you get to democratic societies, um, you, uh, the majority uh, gets to decide. So the only time you need freedom of speech, um, both as a cultural concept, but also eventually as a legal concept, um, is for minority points of view. Um, it, it, because it, basically Madison realized that it would turn into the situation where 51% would always be oppressing the 49%. Um, so free speech is always about minority rights. It wasn't a coincidence. It wasn't a coincidence that uh, the civil rights movement, the gay rights movement, and the women's rights movement really got in gear in the 1950s. It is documented. All three of these movements, they attempted to start earlier. The, the Great Free Speech League that preceded the ACLU was trying to do this in the 1910s. Um, so the problem with the political homogeneity is that when you're when you have sort of like a, a super majority of people who agree with you, you start seeing very predictably free speech as a, as a threat, as a problem. And when you think about the wealth and power of American academia, I mean, but two uh, two schools together, Harvard and Yale, they have one hundred billion dollars just sitting over to the side, and they still try to present themselves as, a, as if they're kind of helpless and kind of weak, but partially because they they see that, that free speech can create some tensions, and absolutely it can. That's actually in some ways its highest uh, highest end. Uh, it, it very predictably, and we all saw this coming uh, starting in, uh, you know, as early as the 1980s, it starts to erode and erode and erode until free speech becomes conceived, uh, conceived of the problem, um, not the solution. And the only way you can really come to that conclusion is if you assume power at some level, will at least be on your side in the future. So I, 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 it really scares me. I think there's this, this absolute inversion of what the value of free speech is for minority points of view um, uh, that's happening in higher ed in K through 12 today. Jakob, one of our um, listeners, Gerald, put a question squarely that we've kind of been dancing around. Do you believe that social platforms should not interfere with COVID disinformation or political disinformation that might exist on their platforms and, you know, extemporaneous conversations such as this, right? People shooting the shit on Joe, the Joe Rogan experience. Well, I wish we didn't live in a sort of uh, have such a centralized uh, social media ecosystem so that you didn't have to really worry about what, what, how platforms content moderated because it wouldn't have such huge consequences. But, But doesn't also, isn't also baked into that question, the idea that there is like a centralized depository of truth, like a ministry of truth that can serve false. Of course there is. It's really interesting. I I urge everyone to go and, and, and read a, a very recent report by, by, the British Royal Society, uh, which on the one hand acknowledges that there are uh, potential real harms involved in scientific misinformation, but warns strenuously against uh, deleting and banning uh, uh, content, saying that 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 is is uh, not only inefficient but also uh, counterproductive uh, uh, to 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 do so. Uh, you mentioned uh, yourself uh, the, the fact that the lab leak theory <laughs> has has been uh, has was was uh, removed and then. Sort of rehabilitated, uh, but but you know how how can anyone during a pandemic, which where 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 everyone has imperfect knowledge and even experts are sort of learning new things every day, how 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 can a social media platform do any kind of of, of really meaningful content moderation about what is true or not? You know, if you take the Danish health authorities, you know, I could I could find ten 
you know, statements that they've made that turn out to be wrong. And many of them were criticized viciously by, by people on social media that where, where people could see this does not make sense. Like, for instance, early on, they said Danes like to go on uh, skiing in Austria and there was a huge outbreak in Austria and a Danish health authority said, oh, go ahead, nothing will happen. And what happened, people brought COVID back uh, to, to Denmark and that, and that really uh, set off. And then they said, you know, face masks, nah, don't work. Uh, don't, uh, we, we won't recommend using uh, face masks. And, 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 you know, then uh, th there was a mask mandate uh, uh, and everything. Um, so, so, so misinformation is just such a, 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 uh, a difficult category to, to, to content moderate and, and really also to, 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 to legislate. But one thing I also think is, you know, our debates about social media to a large extent also, I would argue, is based on myths. So we have this idea of a tsunami of misinformation and disinformation. And that is true in absolute numbers. But if you look at the share of misinformation on social media, it's actually quite limited. Uh, and, 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 and a lot of research uh, suggests that, it, it, that, that it's not as effective. So those who are most likely to fall into sort of the rabbit hole of misinformation uh, are political tribalists. So they are the ones who are already completely committed to uh, a certain ideology. So if you're a hardcore Trump supporter, yes, you're likely to fall for sort of crazy deranged uh, conspiracy theories about uh, the presidential election. Um, uh, but it's not something that uh, is, is likely to, 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 convince, uh, to, to convince everyone. The same thing about hate speech. So my, my, my organization, we, did a, uh, we, we, uh, we had a representative sample of 63 million uh, Facebook comments from, from Danish politicians and media's uh, Facebook sites. And, and, uh, and, 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 and when we evaluated them, we found that uh, only around 0.006% of them violated uh, the Danish penal code, which, uh, which, which prohibits sort of incitement to terrorism, hate speech, and, and, and all these things. So this idea that, that um, social media is flooded with hate and misinformation um, is, is, is at best uh, lacks a lot of nuance and, and um, is often shaped, I think, by this negativity bias and also by the fact that traditional media has skewed incentives when it comes to reporting about social media because social media uh, has, has taken you know, revenue from them and also challenged their, their, their status as, as the institutional uh, gatekeepers. And you know, I don't belong to the faction who thinks that you know, tra traditional media is, uh, is something we can do without. I think, I think we, there needs to be sort of a, a, a division of labor and knowledge production and, and where it would be great if we have higher trust in, in traditional media, but then alternative voices uh, um, can, can flourish on, 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 on social media and we can use what, what the social scientist uh, Hugo Mercer ca calls the open vigilance to sort of sort through uh, what, 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 what is right uh, uh, and wrong. And I think actually human beings are better uh, at, at distinguishing between uh, between uh, bullshit, uh, if you want, and, and and outright misinformation, then then the then um, then the what the public debate sort of uh, paints paints a picture of. Of course, in absolute numbers, it's 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 a lot, and of course, you only need you know a couple of thousand people uh, to buy into to misinformation to have an attack on, on the capital, for instance. And that of course is, uh, is a huge problem. And, you know, let's be, let's be completely uh, open about it. The, the attack on the capital would not have happened without social media. Uh, and, you know, if you, if you read the, I think it's a Senate report, they say that one of the reasons why they, they didn't do anything before was the problem uh, in discerning constitutionally protected speech from credible threats of violence. So, so the first amendment, you could argue, played a role in, in sort of holding back uh, authorities' uh, response to that. And, and so uh, I, that's why I think free speech activists uh, have to acknowledge that free speech comes with, with costs and, and potential harms, but it does not follow that restrictions on free speech solves those issues or that the, 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 uh, the unintended or intended consequences of speech restrictions are, um, are you know, they, they very often will be a cure worse than the disease. Well, we also have, you know, you know, free speech is not an absolute right in the United States, like incitement to imminent lawless action, speech that's in, in 
uh, in pursuant of criminal conspiracy, true threats, those are things. And, and that's why it's often very important that we get the facts on the ground. And it's, an entire, it's a very fact-intensive analysis to, de to determine whether certain speech falls with one of the, within one of those exceptions to the First Amendment. And Stephen, you have your hand up, so do you have something to add on that front? Yeah, I, I just want to add that um, in some areas, we, we do make judgments about what's true and what's false. So, I mean, perjury, for example, is not protected by the First Amendment. That, those are lies. It's false information. It causes great harm. Fraud um, causes great harm. It's not protected by the First Amendment. Uh, commercial speech has limitations. So a pharmaceutical company can't say, I've got some pills, uh, you know, take them, and it's going to do this and that for you. There's got to be proof for it. And so... In, in, in a like way, it might be possible that at least in some circumstances, one might be able to uh, ask uh, content moderators to uh, uh, intervene in situations where uh, someone says, you know, uh, you've got if you get COVID, um, just drink apple juice, right? It's a lie. We know it's a lie, and maybe that's something that is so clear we we can regulate it. But but doesn't the an apple day keep the doctor away there, Stephen? <laughs> <laughs> or drink drink, drink bleach. Drink drink bleach drink, is drink is, bleach. Yeah, yeah. Drink bleach. <laughs> that 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 would seem to be sort of uh, one one of the things yeah. uh, that where 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 you that, that could lead to very direct uh, harms. Yeah, um, but I think I think your larger point, of course, is correct. It's it's very difficult to make these distinctions between truth and falsity, right? Yeah. It's, um, and and the other the other thing is who who's going to make those determinations? Yeah, yeah, that's where you get to the Ministry of Truth question. Yeah, right? who 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 do you trust to do that? And a lot of a lot of the so called disinformation um, is is political speech, right? It's um, so it's, that that goes to the very heart of what we protect in the First Amendment. So it makes it even more difficult when we're dealing with with political speech. Last question here before we sign off, and I want to present this to each of the the panelists here. Who is your favorite free speech activist, or they don't even need to be an activist, exerciser of free speech or philosopher throughout history? And Yakum, I'm going to give you the privilege of going first because you wrote a book about it, and I hope you have it top of mind. If not, we can go to someone else first. Yeah, it's, uh, it's such a difficult question because I've, I've covered uh, so many. But I really, you know, if go and, and read Frederick Douglass, uh, a plea for free speech in Boston. His his speech, you know, after he, he, he there's this abolitionist meeting in in Boston, and it is is disrupted by these uh, rich white Bostonians who uh, don't like the fact that this might disrupt their commercial interest in the South or or threaten the Union. And he basically, you know, it's a very short but powerful speech, and it really addresses more or less all the controversies, uh, free speech controversies that we still discuss today, you know, public-private distinction, heckless veto, um, power, uh, power, the powerful uh, power and privilege, uh, race, uh, race and skin color, and, and so on. And he ends up with this uh, universalist defense of, of, of free speech as depending not on the color of, of your skin or, 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 your, or your wealth, uh, but just by the simple quality of your manhood and there let it rest forever. And I think that's uh, probably the best uh, articulation of, of free speech uh, that, that, uh, that I can think of. And I think he was, he was, he was great. And I think, you know, if we, if, if Frederick Douglass free speech principles uh, under, uh, sort of underpinned our free speech culture, we would, uh, we would be in a lot better place today than, than we are. Fire has a new TikTok channel, and we've got a Frederick Douglass educational, kind of funny educational video coming out about that precise speech. So check out the Fire Org, I think is our handle on TikTok. Speaking of a Chinese company, right? Um, uh, Stephen, how about you? Oh, well, definitely James Madison. Um, I, I referred to him earlier um, about the making a connection between a free press and uh, uh, sovereignty, you know, Republican form of governments that's, that's so important. But he also, uh, he also said, uh, in, in, it wrote in 1800, that uh, freedom of the press is, is justly deemed the only effectual guardian of every other right. So it's not, so the, the, the press needs to be protected, not just because it's nice to protect the press, but because free discussion of public affairs and criticism of public officials 
guards all our, our other rights. And if we lose the right to criticize government officials, especially, and criticize public policy, then uh, the government can run roughshod over us. It, it, it's interesting because you know what you're describing there is essentially free speech and doesn't even need to be cabined to the free press. I think during his time, it was often the press that was the mouthpiece to allow this criticism to happen. But now, because of social media and other means for people to independently speak out, it's almost you know, would he just say free speech now is the bulwark? Yeah, they were thinking about the free press then because the press turned out newspapers and pamphlets and um, things like that. So it, it was it was the primary form of getting uh, information uh, and discussion out there. Yeah. Sarah? Um, I'm less of a historian than my co-panelists, so I will probably go with a, uh, a current example. But uh, over the past couple of years, I have really been um, personally inspired by um, you know, the activists, the journalists, um, the people who are you know, kind of watching their freedoms crumbling in Hong Kong and are still you know, trying to find ways to push back against that, to still find you know, creative ways to you know, continue speaking, continue protesting. Um, you know, I think if you, you know, want to be you know, want to see some of the people who are really caring about their rights and, you know, trying their best to defend what's left of them. I think Hong Kong is, you know, the place to look. Greg? I can't choose among my children. Um, (laughs) (laughs) There's too many people. I have have a running list of great books on free speech culture. Um, I mean, John Stuart Mill gets mentioned a lot because, I mean, I I used to teach John Stuart Mill in my First Amendment class because it's such a, he's such a good arguer. Like, like he he is an astounding lawyer, even though he wasn't a lawyer. Um, So he's amazing for a reason. But in terms of people who are alive, um, you know, Jonathan Rauch is one of my heroes. Um, His book, Kindly Inquisitors, uh, came at free speech from a much different perspective uh, than most people do on free speech. Um, And his Constitution of Knowledge, which came out um, last year, was, you know, probably my book of the year. I thought it it was amazing. As far as uh, comparative newcomers that I'm really excited about, I've been really impressed by Amna Khalid. Um, Yeah, I think that the work she's doing is, is really impressive. And of course, I'm very lucky to get to work with another one of my heroes, Nadine Strassen. You know, so I, like I said, I can't even choose just one, but these, these are these are a lot of my favorite people. Well, I appreciate everyone joining this conversation, taking the time into our hundred plus. Uh, I only checked midway through the podcast, so I don't know the peak number of people who tuned in. I appreciate you tuning in, and you know, Jakob, Stephen, Sarah, Greg. I, I really appreciate you all joining the podcast again, and I hope we get to do it again sometime soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Great chatting with you. That was Jakob Mushingama, Greg Lukianoff, Stephen Solomon, and Sarah McLaughlin. And the book is Free Speech, A History from Socrates to Social Media. It's due out next Tuesday, February 8th. And as we promised, 50 of you who are here at the live recording will receive a free copy. So keep an eye on your emails tomorrow. And of course, we would like to again thank First Amendment Watch for co-sponsoring this conversation. You can learn more about them and access all of their educational materials at firstamendmentwatch.org. This podcast is hosted by me, Nico Perino, produced by Jackie Farmer, and edited by our colleague Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash freespeechtalk or like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We also take listener feedback at so to speak at thefire.org. And if you have further questions for any of our panelists, you can email me there and I will forward it along to them, and they may or may not (laughs) respond depending on their availability. But if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play. Reviews of So To Speak on any of those platforms help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you all again for listening.